Happy Tuesday and welcome back to the penultimate episode of the Into the Night Minute, a show where each week uh, Movies by Minute hosts have been getting together and talking about the 1985 John Landis directed comedy thriller Into the Night. (laughs) I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of the Airport Minute, the uh, Apollo 13 Minute and the Rocketeer Minute. And I'm another host for today, Robert Black of Dave Made a Minute. And I'm your other host. It's Sean German from Spinal Tap Minute and Five Minutes of Mime. And with us once again is uh, writer, director, actor, it's Michael Zan. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. Well, we've been talking uh, in in the previous yesterday. We were talking about uh, your acting career. Uh, let's go into a little bit about uh, more about your uh, writing and producing career. So after you've, uh, well, I, I guess there's there's a bit of an overlap, right? You were acting while you're still getting into screenwriting, right? Yeah. In fact, um, I had a uh, I wrote a, a movie for Castle Rock uh, while I was shooting the Alien Nation uh, gig that I met my wife on. Uh, which never got made, which is typical of you know ninety percent of the movies that are written here. But um, and then uh, when I met my wife, uh, Terry and I became a writing team, and we started because she had a lot of relationships in TV. We started gravitating towards that and concentrating on TV more. Wow, and and you found that you enjoyed that more than acting. I guess that for one thing, there isn't a time constraint. You just have to sit down and write like hell and. Get it well, together. when you're writing, uh, when you're trying to get a job, you, you gotta you gotta really be self motivated because you're trying to write as many sample scripts as you can on spec, so that hopefully somebody will hire you. And um, but then when you're on staff, uh, it's a different process. Uh, you're you go into a writer's room and you kind of break a story together, and then you go off and write the script by yourselves, and then turn it in. And that's kind of the process. On on the first two shows that Terry and I worked together, we were the only staff. They were low but they were cable shows at the time. USA was not um, a big time network that it is now. So we were on Silk Stockings and then we were on Pacific Blue, that uh, cops with bikes on the beach show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, we were, were on Felicity, which is J.J. Abrams' show. Writing for the writing for the WB and the UPN style of of things when you got into like non cable networks was that did that feel like a step up or was it more was it more of a continuum? It actually felt like a step down because it, it was a step up career wise, but the process in that particular writing room was not very good uh, because of the just the different personalities. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't a fun experience, but again, it was a great opportunity, and I'm really glad we had it. But the way that worked was you'd be in a room, and then the EP, uh, the one of the executive producers, John um, Eisendrath, who does uh, Blind Spot, uh, no, uh, Red Blacklist. Yeah, I think of the Blacklist. Yeah. Now he and his then who became his wife were the two people who led the room, and they had their own drama going on so it really got in the way of the work a lot so it was different every room is different because it's like a different culture and a different family you know if you get a group of writers in a room who really like to have fun and laugh and enjoy themselves then you have a really great situation where it doesn't even feel like work even though you're putting in super long hours it doesn't feel like work that way at all it's just there's a camaraderie and you're in the trenches together and you're trying to make it work 
so um, it was actually better to be with a group of people than just to be on our by ourselves. It gets kind of lonesome. Yeah, and and you probably I, I think develop faster as well. I back in the back in the nineteen nineties, I was heavily into uh, writing about uh, single dad television shows. I have a site called <laughs> tvdads.com. I saw that. Yes, and uh, a, a lot of the a lot of the times back in you know early part of the internet, I get invited out to by by CBS things like that and go out and meet some of the production teams. And a lot of the WB staff, I know Brenda Hampton's group, who was doing Seventh Heaven. Uh, they're very similar to what you were describing. They, they just would get together in a crowd and kind of, it would be a crowdsourced uh, script, and they'd come up with a lot of ideas really fast. And they could crank out an hour show in, you know, four days from from writing stuff on a wall to to getting it in a in a yeah. script. And it just it, it just the speed of it was always flabbergasting to me. And I guess I guess you had that similar experience. Yes, yes, yeah. Particularly, well, in, in one uh, when we were um, on Pacific Blue and Terry, my wife, got, was pregnant and she was on maternity leave. I literally wrote a script in three days. Wow! And it, and it, there was no other writers. It was just me breaking the story, getting the outline approved, and then just cranking down and writing the script. Um, so yeah, it can be done. I mean, because. Those shows in particular follow a very um, similar formula and structure. So once you get the structure down and you can plug in all the elements and the act outs, you can you can get it done. But it is but it is pretty intense and it's um, it's better not to do it that way. I think I think at least a week you get a better product. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, uh, back to the, into the night. I don't know if you guys know or not, but that final scene. Um, where Michelle shows up and says, can I have a ride to the airport? That wasn't in the original script. Um, uh, John put that in after um, we shot everything, and he decided that uh, it was too much of a downer. And I agree oh. with him, actually. I think it's a better ending than the one where he just wakes up in the hotel room and she's gone with all the money. See, I, I think I would have liked it better if she had just been gone. Because then it's more like an old film noir in the end, and that's true. You never got anything good out of it. That's experience. true, but um, unfortunately, when you got the slapstick um, going on, that that wasn't the tone of the film up to that point. And I think the original writer Ron Coslow, who later did Beauty and the Beast on TV, the first one, yeah, yeah. He, he hated it. He he had a much darker script mm -hmm. as written when Landis got it, um, and he did not like. The changes that Landis made to the script at all. Uh, were, were there like really big change? I mean, can you think of any other big changes that were in the script? That um, I, I actually never saw Coslow's script, but from what I heard, his was much more in line with what I think Robert was saying he would have preferred, um, which was that dark ending, um, yeah. which yeah. is very film noir. Um, and, and actually, that is. Now that you bring it up, Landis was trying to do a film noir. That's exactly what he was trying to do. Um, and it would have been a better ending, I think, if she had just left him there. Yeah, because he, he, he would have gotten exactly what he'd asked for. I mean, she promised to split split $12,500 $12, with him, and that's we were looking at that the other day and saying that is about the size of that wad that she left. So yeah. it's, uh, she got, you know, he left with her with what, what she promised and nothing more. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I, I find myself in this particular minute, as you know, as I end and we get that happy ending. 
I find myself not finding out that I don't care about any of the characters. I really don't. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's uh, it feels like it's time it's time to go home. That's, <laughs> I think I think you're and right. That, that's part of that letdown. That's why the film didn't succeed. And again, I think it has to do with Jeff's performance, because if you're playing dazed and, and gobsmacked throughout the whole film, and there's no vulnerability really to invest in with the character. And I think that that was one of the main reasons why the film never succeeded. You couldn't hook into the protagonist. Well, you were talking about that last episode. Do you, was that something that came mostly from Goldblum or from Landis? Goldblum. Okay. Landis really isn't an actor's director. So what you bring to the part is what gets shot. You're cast basically based on what you, what he thinks you're going to bring to the part. So Landis never gave Goldblum a, a bit of direction. Goldblum's those were all his choices. Hmm. Wow. And from from the sound of it, you, you're saying there's so much improv. I mean, Catherine Harold, Harold had told me that uh, her scenes were all improv. I mean, even so much yes. as the, you know, like the gum and everything. Yes. Was there really a script that you were working from, or was it just they're waving their arms and saying, now do this or that? Well, that's the way Philandis directs. I mean, in that death scene of mine at the in the airport, he's going, look this way, now look that way, now look up, now look terrified. I mean, that's literally, that's oh. like silent movie directing, where Chaplin would <laughs> direct the silent movie actors <laughs> in that same method. So... Um, he's a very, like I said, technical director. And so the script, there was a script, but it was, they come in and they trash this guy's house. And so it was open to suggestions for, you know, bits like the gum and everything. Um, you know, you yeah. could never get away with that kind of role, uh, a woman, female role in film today either, of the Catherine Harold role. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I I got the feeling in talking with her, she she didn't like the part, and most most of the reason she didn't want to be on is she didn't want to talk about the movie because she she really didn't like the part. Uh, yeah, I don't blame so. her because she was just bimbo, bimbo who got drowned, and she's yeah. a very intelligent, thoughtful, uh, and sensitive person. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if you see her in the, the follow up movie uh, Modern Romance with Albert Brooks, she's fantastic in that film, and, yeah. uh, and yeah. comes across really really great acting. Um, but uh, it just seems like everybody kind of got wasted in this film. I mean, I, I did like uh, 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 Bruce McGill's Bruce part. McGill, yeah. yeah, I mean, doing Charlie—that was that's <laughs> that's a role of a lifetime. Just that that entrance was perfect. Yeah, and, yeah, and, Bruce is funny. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I get the feeling that if you know if Landis relied on improv for that particular scene, then he got what he paid for because McGill knows how to how to act uh, out a scene. Yes, yes. I think some of it was improv. Uh, it was. It was on. There was some. The, the conflict was on the page between him and his. Uh, he was. He was her brother, I believe. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the conflict, but but Bruce, as always, brought a lot to the part. Yeah, he he didn't get to play anything on his throat, but it was you know. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kind of wonder, and something we we talked about um, previously. Um, in, in a, a previous episode of the podcast, is um, what these actors, you know, this rather than recast this film with different actors, but what would these actors have done later on in their career? Um, and, and you, Michael, you talked earlier about um, Jeff Goldblum 
and kind of the the actor he's become since then that maybe um, both he and Michelle, if they were a little bit older, a little bit more experienced because the the movie kind of hangs on them. They're the main characters. They're the people we're following around. So even if, um, you know, even if some of these other parts around them are are not fully fleshed out, if they had a little bit more, um, maybe it would have been a, a better received film. Maybe, maybe if yeah, uh, Goldblum would have made some different choices. I, I, I really can't fault Michelle too much for what she did. Because she, her part, I mean, if you really look at the part, it's kind of underwritten, uh, particularly in, in those days, the way they wrote women. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she just seems like this, um, this creature who is intent on surviving um, without any kind of depth or backstory to her. Um, and I think she did really the best she could with it. Um, I really think that... Um, in some ways, you could say Goldblum's part may have been underwritten too. But again, he he brought none of none of the um, the quirk and the uh, originality that he brings in all his other roles to it. And I, it was an acting choice he made about playing insomnia. Yeah, it's it's difficult. And, and it, from what you're saying, that he didn't get any real direction from Landis, so no. that's that's all he could work. I mean, you all were basically independent contractors on this movie trying to figure out what what your role is <laughs> right right i kind of knew what my role was pretty clearly i was dangerous buffoon yeah um, got, yeah that pretty much sums it up i was you know a, a killer a killer clown a killer buffoon uh and we all were all three of us so from a practical matter, were, were any of these shot on sets? I mean, I'm assuming the uh, the Jack's yacht is is obviously a set. Um, no, but it was, no, that was, it a, was that, a, real, a real yacht. That was shot. The interior was actually shot inside the yacht. Wow. Yep. Yep. Okay. A real yacht. I don't think I, nothing was on a set. Wow. Nothing. The only thing I think that was on a set was the scene, and it was a pickup. I think where Michelle went through some shrubbery or bushes or something. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine yeah, they had to build that tunnel. Yeah, yeah, that that was that was the only thing that um, was Sean I said, but otherwise everything. And that was kind of Landis's point about making a film noir using L.A. as a character and um, the backdrop of Los Angeles being the backdrop of the film. But everything was practical: the parking garages, the the mansions, the the car chases, everything. Um, nothing was on set. Yeah, I, the, when I saw the... I, my my uh, undergraduate degree was in film, and when I saw the, the opening in the uh, in the parking garage, uh, all I thought of, that is every film one... Uh, film one director's uh, thought is, I can make this in a garage, and they're being chased, and they're being shot, and like that's that's been every... I think since the 60s, people have shot in parking garages because they like the look of it, but I, I thought, why is... Landis doing it in a in a parking garage. I mean, I know it's part of the story, but it just felt very film one-ish. Yes. Um, yeah. That was a long night. The air in there was so bad. <laughs> I mean, just imagine just toxic uh, fumes of them all night in a garage. How many times did you have to drop on the on the hood of the uh, Corolla? <laughs> Once. Wow, I did okay. it in one take. One take Zan, they call them. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And they actually wanted the stuntman to do it, but I asked, I said, it's not a big deal. Let me just do it. And they were and they were cool with it. Yeah, and that's that's the big scene in the trailer. I mean, you're just the. Yep. Yep. Um, wow. Uh, I also did my own stunt in um, Live and Die in L.A. Being pulled off 
the roof and getting blown up. Really? Like a 10-foot drop into an airbag. Wow. Um, and and that was that was a single take then. The uh... no, they made me do that two or three times. Um, <laughs> that um, Freakin was. I'm not in trouble with this, but he was on something, shall we say, out of his mind. Uh, he was another one of those um, '80s auteurs, '80s mm-hmm. '70s auteurs. But um, um, he was he was a really abusive guy um, to everybody. I mean, he caused a car crash when we were shooting that. Um, when the, uh, trying to get the um, again, my my scene was an afterthought. That whole terrorist Secret yeah. Service protecting the presidency because the movie was about the the uh, Secret Service dealing with a counterfeiter. Yeah. Right. But then they got a, the studio was unhappy, saying, "Well, no, the Secret Service does more than that." So they added that opening to the film to give a context to what the Secret Service does. So there was that whole motorcade that's pulling into the front of the Hilton Hotel. Freakin was screaming at them, closer, 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 and then three cars rammed into each other, and then he threw his bullhorn down and was screaming. Ah, <laughs> Too close. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. He he um yeah, he he was he he had a very interesting directing style in that um he liked to slap his actors to get a performance out of them. And wow. he, he did that with me, in fact, and I was shocked. Um, we were. I was supposed to be on the roof. I mean, are, is it okay to talk about this film because it feels? Yeah, good. yeah, yeah. No, it's. I mean, this is this is fascinating. I'm, I'm assuming that most people have have seen to live and die in L.A. So, so uh, I'm this terrorist. I got dynamite strapped to my chest. I'm gonna ro- uh, rappel down and blow up the president. And we were shooting it on the roof of the Hilton Hotel. And so everything that you've rehearsed or practiced of this, I'm ready to die. All this. It goes out the window because you got this giant air conditioning compressor going full blast <laughs> in the background. So you have to scream your lines to be heard. And um, he, for some reason, instead of giving me directions, said wasn't getting what he wanted from me or something. And so he comes up to me and he comes up to me, grabs me, and says, "Do you trust me? Do you trust me?" I went, "Yeah." <laughs> Bam! He hauls off and he slaps me. And I don't know what he thought he was going to get out of me, but I just went cold. What the hell just happened to me? It's funny because I have a friend, Philip Baker Hall, who's an old-time actor. He's been in a lot of films. You know him. Yeah. Um, who told me that he freaking did the same thing to Ramon, Ramon Bieri in um, Sorcerer. Slapped him, but then Bieri went after him with a shovel. Like, you little brick, you can't hit me with a shovel. I mean, you can't slap me. You just went right after him. So, anyway, that was that night. And then, as as it was, as it turned out, um, they screwed up uh, my scene. So, they had to bring me back to shoot the scene again. Um, something with a camera and continuity. And, and oh, Freakin also doesn't believe in makeup either. You know, so we were all just on natural. Some bizarre school of film that he ascribes to. So when I'm when we get back there um, and we're ready to shoot, I go up to him and say, "Look, just give me about five minutes to let me know when you're about to shoot, and then I'll give you what you need. But whatever happens, do not hit me." <laughs> Anyone? Yeah, but I I said no, 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 no. <laughs> This is not a negotiation. Mm-hmm. Do not hit me. 
And he went, oh, okay. So, and then we shot it, the scene was fine, it went on. But it, it, again, indicative of that whole class of directors from the 70s and the 80s, there was a arrogance um, and a real um, abuse of their position and power. And there was also a lot of coke uh, with everyone involved back then. And it's the kind of behavior that is not tolerated in Hollywood today at all. Um, it's much more professional. You behave like that, you get outed and you get banned. Um, you can't abuse actors and you can't abuse drugs and be on a set. It's much more professional these days than it was back then. That's something lost in the freewheeling fun part of it because it's much more corporatized and uh, homogenized with standard uh, uh, franchise films. But back then, the directors could misbehave um, all they wanted. I had the same similar experience with Herb Russ and Protocol, where I played another terrorist. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was it was an interesting shoot. I, I've got to tell a Friedkin story. Um, freshman year uh, of, of, of college, I went to Fordham University, and one of my teachers was, uh, was Father Bill O'Malley, who was the, uh, he was... Um, uh, what you call it? Uh, Father Karras's best friend in The Exorcist. He was real, a real Jesuit priest who who was in The Exorcist, and they had been shooting the the, the fall down the stairs scene where Karras is laying on the ground and and uh, Father O'Malley's giving him last rites, and he, he couldn't get the line right. And he was very it was he was tired. It's middle of December, freezing cold, and Freakin said, "I know you're not a an actor, but do you want to do this scene right?" And he said, "Yeah." And the, the Freakin leaned in and he thought oh, I'm going to get great directing advice and freaking punched him in the stomach and said roll it and he was he was very shaken saying are you very sorry for your sins and, so, and if you watch the the take that they used in the exorcist of a uh, father a father O'Malley who's um uh, he plays Father Dyer is is, is a character in there. Uh, he's very upset giving uh, giving the last rites to Father Karras, and the reason he's very upset is because he's in agony because Freakin just punched him in the stomach. So we see a pattern here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, having been on the end of that, uh, it really makes me angry because it's yeah. it's abusive. It's a violation. Oh you, yeah. You don't treat people that way. You don't need to do that to get a performance out of somebody. If you're a good director, you can say the right things to the actor that will get the performance out of him and not uh, disrespect his humanity. It's really, I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, I just got angry hearing that story again because, oh, this is what that, that, that guy did all the time then. Yeah, and, and I can I can tell you, Father O'Malley thought that Freakin was doing him a favor by being that mean. And when you know anybody else looking at you, punched a priest just so you could get a right take—that's kind of crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, apparently, and you're showing that he's that was just part of a trend of a long line of yeah. uh, freaking yeah, yeah. stars. Lack of um, visibility direct is what it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, generally, you hire people that are talented enough to know how to act and uh, they don't trust their actors that's a but here's another side of it that's kind of disgusting is that he would not do that to a star he would not punch gene hackman in the french connection yeah he wouldn't mm -hmm. punch uh somebody who's a bigger name he only did that to people who he knew he had power over and that is that's abusive yeah yeah mm -hmm. if at, at the shame um, which, 
you know, <laughs> I'm glad we're not doing that particular movie, but, yeah. uh, but, you know, I guess it falls somewhere in between with, you know, you have that with too much, you know, abuse versus neglect, which seems to be where Landis was running. This is just kind of, you know, uh, I'll take Landis any day <laughs> over that. At least we laughed a lot and had fun. Um, yeah. And so, he got to break things. And, and it was, it was a fun set. And I was like, I, I think I mentioned Michelle and I were classmates uh, in an acting class. So we were friends before. So it was fun hanging out together in the trailer and just, you know, between, um, which is what mo- making movies is waiting to make movies basically. So we had a lot, always have a lot of downtime. I mean, if, if I were, I was there for like 12 hours at a time. And if I was in front of the camera for like five minutes in any 12 hour period, I had a busy night. Wow. That's the ratio of time to waiting when you're in a role like well, the one I had. Did, did you have a, a favorite scene? Uh, I think my death scene where okay. I got to really do some acting and didn't, yeah, get, that... and didn't get slapped. <laughs> Um, how how was it? I, I know you you knew you knew Michelle beforehand, but I was working with Michelle Breeze. Was it general? Oh yeah, she, yeah. She's she was wonderful, and she's a she's sweet. You know, she no airs or anything like that. And we were friends from before. And um, I had produced a, a big hit play. You know, she had come and you know seen and been supportive of. And, and yeah, we were friends. It was it was very pleasant. Very, oh, very nice. And she's she's a real she's a real person. She's real down to earth, and it was it was nice working with her. It was nice working with Goldie Hawn too. The for the brief uh, bit of time we That's had together. Call. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, let's uh, we're we're gonna finish up this whole movie tomorrow. So uh, let's. I have, I know we we have a couple more questions for you, but let's uh, let's come back tomorrow for, uh, for for folks wanting to join us on the on the final episode. Uh, we will be here if you have. Any questions? Well, it's too late to ask because we're going to finish recording before you ever get them out on social media. But if you'd like to uh, reach out to us on social media, we're always available at the usual locations: uh, Facebook at the uh, King Lives Listeners Limo, or out on uh, Twitter at Night Minute. You can find previous episodes, all the previous episodes except for uh, tomorrow's, uh, here on the uh, on NightMinute.com or on all the popular podcasting uh, showcases like uh, uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify. Uh, but uh, check back with us here tomorrow as we wrap up into the night do we thank you or what i'd say i fall in the or what category 